I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. When we think of music at sea, we might think of images popularised in films. Sailors singing while they hoist the mainsail and scrub the decks. Or perhaps a solitary accordion accompanying a lament. But in the early modern period, music at sea was far more than a way to pass the time. For as today's guests will explain... Musicians aboard ships were professional and civilian performers, paid to play at times of work and leisure. Or to put it another way, these men were not sailors who happened to be able to play an instrument. They were highly skilled trumpeters, drummers and fifers, oboists, pipers, fiddlers and horn players. And they were employed as integral members of voyages to perform specific roles, from helping the crew navigate treacherous waters to managing communication with non-English-speaking peoples. In fact, the range of their work is quite incredible, but it's historically been absent from conversations about maritime culture. So while today we will encounter some familiar names, including Francis Drake and the Mary Rose, today's episode will lead us to think about early modern ocean voyages in a whole new way. Our guide for this journey is Dr. James Seth, Assistant Professor of English at Central Washington University. He teaches and researches Shakespeare, early modern drama, maritime literature and early modern English voyaging. And his first book, Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages, The Lives of the Seafaring Middle Class, was published by Amsterdam University Press in June 2022. Dr. Seth, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today about this fascinating subject, something I knew so little about, and I actually think it might be quite unfamiliar for many people. I wonder maybe if we could start by illustrating maritime musicians with the people who form the heart of your work. So can you tell us a bit about John Brewer and William Porter, who they were, and how representative they are of your research? Thank you so much. Absolutely. John Brewer and William Porter were both trumpeters and they had extraordinary lives. They both were court musicians and they were both maritime musicians. John Brewer actually started his early career on a very high profile voyage, Sir Francis Drake's famous circumnavigation from 1577 to 1580. 
And upon returning to England, he actually worked at the court for Queen Elizabeth from 1582 to 1589. And so he used his career as a maritime musician, as a launching pad, into a very prominent court musicianship position. And he was noted for his skillful musicianship at a very young age, and he came recommended by the Lord High Chancellor and Queen's favorite, Christopher Hatton. So he had very good recommendations at an early age. He also was part of the Thomas Doty controversy as one of the accusers of gentleman navigator Thomas Doty, who was notoriously executed for mutiny and insubordination towards Drake. But he also attained the highest level of employment for an English musician and then eventually married into a musician family, which I thought was really interesting as well. So William Porter, on the other hand, his early career was as trumpeter in ordinary for Charles I from 1641 to 1649. And so he began his musical career not at sea, but on land and particularly at Charles's court. Between Charles's execution and the restoration of Charles II, his whereabouts are generally unknown, or at least the data that I've accrued. But upon the crowning of Charles II, he ended up receiving a stipend, I suppose, but he was named a pensioner trumpeter and he received annual wages for his loyalty to Charles I. And in his later years, he actually joined the East India Company's voyage to St. George, which was from 1675 to 1677, on the Loyal Eagle with Captain James Bonnell. And he became actually terminally ill during the voyage and was left at St. Helena in June 1677. He may have been a trumpeter or just a musician on that particular voyage as well, but he went to sea much later in life. And we know that his affairs were all in order because he had his daughter Prudence be his lawful attorney and collect all of his materials. So this may have been perhaps his last voyage that he knew of, that he feared or predicted that it would be his last voyage. But those are two very different lives. One beginning at sea and returning to land and the other beginning at land and going to sea at the end. Their stories are quite remarkable. Why do you think their lives have historically been overlooked? I think much of it has to do with the fact that their presence really wasn't very explicitly made in a lot of voyaging journals and extracts and different papers from these journals. Typically, you'll have musicians in the list of crew members. And if they were a trumpeter or a drummer, they were classified as a naval musician. But if they played other instruments beyond that, they were just listed as musician. But typically, they only appeared in short anecdotes <laughs> in many of the journals that I've read. And it was usually when someone was being introduced to a captain or a crew and you had musician playing at the very beginning or at the opening of either a diplomatic encounter or an invitational greeting or something like that. And so you'd have a brief mention of music in the background or a trumpeter's heralding or the drummer's drumming. So most of these that I've come across have been anecdotal. But the more I've been looking at it, the more I realize that, yes, their lives have been overlooked. And I think also another reason is because you have such prominent and powerful figures, Sir Francis Drake or Martin Frobisher, etc. You have the gentleman navigators who predominated the conversation of this era. And I'm specifically talking about during the early English years of navigation in the mid 16th century. Those are really the main reasons. One is we get very little in the firsthand text and the primary text. And then also because you have the captains and the other members who take up more space, I suppose. <laughs> 
So if their lives are referred to so obliquely in the sources, how did you go about piecing together their histories? Did you have to explore many archives, shipwrecks even? Much of the archival work I've been doing is a lot of digital archiving, but also going through a lot of musicians' library accounts and comparing that to broader histories. But also, I think the livery accounts give us a picture that we don't necessarily get in the major accounts. And then comparing those to other letters, other documents that include these musicians, even just very briefly. So I think doing a kind of synthesis of various livery accounts and some of the major voyaging documents and then the tangential pieces give us a slightly clearer picture. The project was initially supposed to be on the performances and the voyages and not necessarily the musicians. But I shifted my focus when my wonderful reader at Amsterdam University Press suggested that you're giving us more of these musicians' lives than you're actually giving us of the picture of the performances and their lives are actually really important. So that's the direction I moved based on those recommendations. And leading that direction gave me a much fuller dramatis persona. Well, let's dig into the work of these men now. Your work on them makes it clear that musicians aren't just part of the decor, as it were. They are integral members of the voyage, which makes them integral to oceanic history. Just to be clear, though, did they perform any mariner's work at all? Yes. So my work that I do focuses both on professional musicians who were not only playing for entertainment and recreational purposes, but also communicative purposes and diplomatic purposes as well. But I also talk greatly about amateur musicians as well. The professional musicians were in different categories that I talk about. You have the naval musicians, your trumpeters, your drummers, your five players who had to be on constant guard. The trumpeters were on the poop deck and they not only communicated and signaled with other ships, but to other members of the crew. They would also be scouts on land and use their trumpets as communicative signaling devices that way. But they were also integral in other aspects as well. The trumpeters were also part of formal greetings and you had musicians that were part of these very elaborate diplomatic greetings. So I guess when we hear the word musicians or performers at sea or aboard ship, we think of people gathering around a bunch of musicians and being entertained that way. But it definitely goes much further than that. Certainly you had times of recreation, but you also had scheduled times. In the case of Francis Drake, he regularly wanted psalms to be played and for religious ceremony to occur and use the musicians that way. But also when he was reading dignitaries in Java, for instance, various musicians were playing their instruments alongside or in front of the Javanese royal family. And so you have musicians at the front or at the sort of appearance level to increase diplomacy and to also present the English as cultured and pleasing to whatever audience that they were giving their music or their performances to. And these two subsets of musicians that you mentioned, the naval musicians and the more civilian, I suppose, performers, were both groups integral members of voyages in similar ways? And did they work together? Yes, I believe they did, even if they did occupy different spaces. The drummers would typically be on deck, and then you'd have concerts of musicians that were usually in the cabin with the captain or near him. But you also have other amateur musicians who were either sailors or deckhands or any other manual laborers who were also participating in various sort of work songs and work performances. But you have definitely a kind of culture aboard ship where it was very noisy all the time, or at least there were a lot of different kinds of performances happening. But I do think that there could have been some crossover. 
and images that I've looked at. You have sometimes several trumpeters or a trumpeter and someone else on the poop deck looking about. And then you have, of course, people pulling rope and then other musicians who potentially are on deck. And they could also assist in, if not maritime labor, then certainly some sort of maritime activity using their instruments. Okay, so you've mentioned one way that that worked. And actually, there are some wonderful stories in your book about the role of musicians in diplomacy and trade, such as presenting to Japanese royalty for the East India Company. And so what do you think the intention of the music was there? Is it, as you've intimated, kind of just sort of showing English prowess? Does it oil the wheels of negotiations? Or do you think there's anything else going on? I think part of it is, as you said, oiling the wheels of negotiations. I think a lot of it also is because on many of these early voyages, they had not encountered various cultures before and didn't know exactly how to approach them. And so you have these sort of rituals of getting together and having conversations and having feasts. One phrase that I use quite often in my book is kind entertainment. And this phrase doesn't just indicate like performance necessarily, but kind entertainment was given usually in diplomatic occasions to bridge cultural barriers. And it could involve a number of things. It could involve just conversations. It could involve trading wares. Typically, when the English were in non-Christian nations or when they were trying to Christianize as well, then they would have conversations about Christianity. But they would also perform and give elaborate performances. I think in these either tense or difficult negotiations, then you have the musicians who were at the ready to give kind entertainment whenever they were needed. And in various different kinds of spaces, different forms of locations. But then you also had musicians who were also at the ready to give warnings for other crew members back at the ship or near the ship. So I think you had musicians at different spaces, different levels, who were doing different things. People who were performing, people who were also communicating and at the ready. That's so interesting because music, of course, does change a mood. So I can see, of course, how it'd be useful in negotiations. But that point about communication is interesting as well. So musicians could be involved in signalling, in other words. Yes. One of the most, I guess, famous instances for the early Northwest Passage voyages, Martin Frobisher's first voyage to try to find the Northwest Passage. And when he landed at Hall's Island, named for Christopher Hall, who captained the Gabriel during Hall's first voyage, they were naming Mount Warwick. And during this sort of naming period, there was a trumpeting that were giving their performance. You have Richard Purdy, who is Frobisher's main trumpeter. He's actually one of the few people that we have payment accounts for as well. But we had instances where he would give rituals of performance, but then also once they were encountered by Inuit peoples, then he would also signal to others. And there was the naming of another place called Trumpets Island that was specifically where Frobisher lost some of his men during this first voyage and also where Richard Purdy would be communicating and signaling and trumpeting to get them to answer back, and they never did. So during the second voyage, he would be using his trumpeters more frequently to communicate, but he also had a stricter schedule. He wanted more communication among his crew, and he wanted crew members to be together so that they wouldn't lose each other again. And I think the first voyage where he lost men and he believed that it was this treacherous move by the Inuit people. And he vowed revenge, or at least he wanted to get his bin back, but also he was willing to do some pretty nefarious things to do it, including capturing an Inuit man named Calicho, or that he named Calicho. So it was actually quite a dangerous role, potentially, being a musician. Yes. 
And being a naval musician, especially where you had very loud instruments that were used for these communicative purposes, could also essentially put a target on your back, so to speak. And one instance of this actually comes from a trumpeter of Captain Drake, where he led the English fleet to the Spanish-occupied town of Nombre de Dios, and he entered a marketplace in town with his trumpeter and a group of men, and he ordered another group to stay behind with their trumpeter to communicate. So he had several trumpeters who were communicating back and forth, but he ordered his trumpeter that was with him to blast his horn in the middle of the marketplace. And this caused the Spanish militia to flee to the mountains, but then there were other Spanish military who returned and shot the trumpeter. And according to one Portuguese observer, the trumpeter even lay down with his trumpet in his hand. So we have the trumpeters who were essentially used to signal, but were also, as you said, it was very dangerous because as soon as they trumpeted, they were not only trying to scare off, but they were also giving away their location. And one of the frequent things was removing their trumpeters or their communicators, the people who were signaling back and forth, because then that would give them an upper hand against the English. Yes, an absolutely terrifying situation, I imagine, because if you've got this instrument, presumably you don't have weapons, and then you've just absolutely identified where you are in the midst of enemies. You must have had to be very brave to do it, I suppose. Absolutely. You were essentially on a suicide mission. <laughs> but they were also, for many captains who had traversed the area, and Drake included, there was definitely this sense of bravado or this sense that he knew this area and was very imposing, but they had to retreat and he was actually wounded as well. He was shot in the leg during this particular military invasion from the Spanish in Nombre de Dios. So there was definitely points at which they were very risky, moves taken, and many of the musicians and performers were casualties in that sense. Did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. I 
was fascinated to learn, though, that musicians were also used to communicate with non-English speaking peoples in Africa and South America and other places. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. In many cases, musicians were used to bridge lingual and cultural barriers. And in many cases, they were used to delight. And I think one of the words often used is joy when describing an early initial encounters with non-English speaking peoples and indigenous peoples. And this can be deceptive because the English sort of assumed that just by noise making and celebrating that everything was joyful. But as certain scholars have emphasized, this is not always the case. But in sometimes the English performed songs for indigenous peoples and would have a kind of mimetic or intercultural performance with them. And one instance of this actually occurs in Frobisher's third voyage, when he was participating in a cross-cultural performance of singing, dancing, and rhythm timekeeping. And uh, the Inuit actually not only shared more of their language through music, but also more of their culture. And it was an intercultural exchange. One particular passage that comes from his journal from the third voyage, Meta Incognita, states, they will teach us the names of each thing in their language, which we desire to learn and are apt to learn anything of us. They delight in music above measure and will keep time and stroke to any which you shall sing, both with your voice, head, hand and feet, and will sing the same tune aptly to you. And that's the end of the quote. And essentially, the English were fascinated at the fact that they could repeat certain rhythms, that they could parrot certain musical sounds and rhythms to them. But what we don't get is what the Inuit were teaching the English, not just language, but also music and culture. Was there particular rhythmic timekeeping abilities that they were actually teaching the English? But certainly, we get one side very strongly that the English are essentially performing and that certain groups are receiving that in different ways. Either they're performing it back to them or performing in their own musical culture or style. Another great example is when the English were in Java and they were performing. And I emphasize the fact that what we don't get is what the Javanese were performing with them. We have a brief passage that we know that Javanese musicians were in the cultural encounter with Drake's musicians during the circumnavigation. But it's likely that they performed gamelan music and that the English were hearing certain sounds for the first time and were communicating in an entirely different way than just trading wares or in a sort of lingual way with a translator, which they often used to navigate certain areas. I love this. I love that you have investigated a whole new way of approaching history, the soundscape of the past and the way in which actually, of course, we know music connects us just as much as different styles show off different cultures. Tell me also about how musicians brought courtly customs aboard ships. Is there something else that comes out in your work? What kind of courtly customs are we speaking of? Why would a captain like Francis Drake need customs while at sea? So court culture influenced the climate, the activity aboard ship, and this was anywhere from dinners in the great cabin to psalm service. So various musicians were a part of different court culture, certain court culture rituals to bring in particular ideas and certain sounds that they were familiar with. And one of the most prevalent were certainly psalm services or playing for holidays, which they would do. And there are several instances where on the circumnavigation of Drake, certain Spanish observers are seeing certain psalm services happening. 
and are describing them. And it's unique because we get a sense that there's not only musicians performing, but there's people dancing. In this particular case, John Drake, Drake's cousin, was a dancer during certain psalm services and certain religious rituals. Other courtly rituals, you have very elaborate dinners in some cases. You have very fine silver. Certain gentlemen navigators enjoyed putting on a very elegant show. Certainly there was a blending of it. I don't think it was just all court culture, but I think it was a blending of certain sort of maritime sensibilities and court sensibilities that were enmeshed in this sort of synthesis. And particularly in 16th and 17th century voyages, the court culture really depends on the intentions and the way that the captain was presenting himself. And was the captain very much into sort of fine and elegant things? Or was the captain not very elaborate or did not want to invest in a lot of lavishness of the court? So I think a lot of it has to do with particularly the way that the captain and the culture aboard ship viewed the court and whether or not they wanted to be associated with it or how they did. <laughs> and... Another custom, though, I suppose would have been more common to all types of captains and ships and the musicians were involved in that I found particularly moving was that of funeral rites, even actually execution. And it really brought home to me the fact that death was very central to life at sea. What did you discover about these events? These were part of the cultural rituals aboard ship, and certainly death was a very everyday occurrence. And so it's appropriate to address this. Funerals were usually accompanied with horns or drums. There were certain songs that were performed for funeral for these specific occasions. On May 17, 1608, during an East India Company's voyage, this was the third voyage, there was a company factor, Edmund Clark, who was pronounced dead while the fleet was victualling. And the Hector commander, the Hector was one of the sister ships, William Hawkins insisted that Clark be buried at the shore of Socotra and that, quote, no wrong should be done to it in his absence. And we know that there were musicians on the third voyage who could give these somber performances that were respectful of the dead. You can imagine how many of these that there probably were, and perhaps so many that there weren't that many recorded, but certainly there were men lost aboard ship. There were men who were captured. There were men who fell ill to various maladies aboard ship due to the climate, the food, etc., malnutrition. So there were a lot of different ways that these men could die. But the fact that there were these details of men marching to a particular location to honor a certain member of the ship or to observe, sometimes on a subsequent ship, they might name a location on either a captain or someone who was prominent aboard that previous voyage. So there's different ways of honoring the dead that are very valuable aboard these shipboard practices. Given that we have thought about danger and we thought about death, was life as a maritime musician at least well paid? Or did it convey socioeconomic status when they went back home? Were they well regarded by families and communities around them? So we have just a brief picture of the kinds of payments that they would receive. One of the more explicit payments to a musician who's named is the payment to Richard Purdy, who is the musician aboard Frobisher's early voyages to the Northwest Passage. And we get a sense that the naval musicians were paid more, not only because of their status as being part of the Navy, but like also because of their roles in communicating and their roles with the captain of the ship. Whereas you have musicians stated as just musicians who could perhaps have been string players or still players or any other kinds of musicians, and they were generally paid less. 
So lack of detail is usually the issue here, but in the case of Richard Purdy, there's one particular passage that indicates a payment of 14 pounds, 11 shillings, that wouldn't have equipped 17 musicians with instruments. So there are certain livery accounts that are a bit more explicit. There's one in May of 1666 to pay William Peacock, Nicholas Caperon, John Crowther, and Thomas Shultrup four of his majesty's trumpeters in ordinary 40 pounds for their present supply so divided four ways each trumpeter was paid 10 pounds for their present supply on the voyage to attend prince rupert so this was a specific voyage to meet and entertain prince rupert this voyage may have been to prepare what was later known as the four days battle during the second anglo-dutch war so we have certain voyages that are very explicit and certainly livery accounts that state exactly the rates for either all musicians or for a single musician. But we don't get a very strong picture. I will say that Richard Purdy's payment on the Frobisher voyage was higher than some members of this, which is really interesting as well. So you have a kind of middle class, and that's the subtitle of my book is The Seafaring Middle Class. They weren't paid lowly wages, but they certainly weren't higher ranking officers. So you have them in the middle, both payment-wise and physically and in terms of what they did aboard ship. Now, I am familiar with how much £10 would have been in the kind of mid-16th century, so I don't really know how much it is in the mid-17th century. It's a little hard to give an idea. I think this would have been a lot for a musician. This would have been certainly more than contracted musicians would receive, split four ways. I think that with the £10, you certainly had quite a lot for an extended period of time. But they were also court musicians who were living at court. And so this is different. The musician who was on a contracted voyage, who received certain payments for that particular voyage, and then would essentially try to go on another voyage. So the court musicians were receiving steady payments, and they were living very well. We have those documents, but we have very little <laughs> in terms of how much musicians were paid on contracted voyages and other voyages. But certainly an East India Company has some records but I would say if they were at court, they did very well. And everyone else, it really depended on how fluid the money was for this particular voyage. Right. So it's the difference between being salaried and being freelance. Yes. I think that's a great way to compare it. What about status? I mean, you talked about a couple of men at the beginning of our chat and that sort of move between land and sea. Do you see the musicians gaining status? Could someone on a contract get to that salaried position at court? It would have been very difficult. I think John Brewer is exceptional in the fact that he had very good recommendations. There weren't many musicians who received such recommendations, but we do know that musicians did recommend others and that status could be achieved through a court position, but also through reputation. And I think it's interesting to read certain letters where musicians are recommended. There's one instance where an East India Company former musician was recommending a man to be aboard one of the East India Company voyages to be a singer. And they essentially said no, because if he couldn't play on an instrument, he wouldn't be useful aboard ship if he was just a singer. But I think status has to do with how multi-talented you were as well as whether or not you received very good recommendations from people at court. So I think there were some avenues for some musicians to ascend to a courtly position. Certainly it wasn't the case for everyone. And I think if you had very good connections, then that would certainly put you above others in terms of prominence. 
The sort of sources we've been talking about are documentary on the whole, I suppose, because of accounts and things. But I suppose there are indications in terms of material culture, stuff that survives, in other words. I was thinking of the Mary Rose, because I know that three table pipes and a table or a drum were found on board. Have you found evidence of remaining articles, cultural material, to be useful in your research? I have yet to go on a deep research trip. But the shipwrecks that we've been fortunate enough to find different items and artifacts on tell us so much, not just about the employment and who the musicians that were aboard, but also it's interesting, the variations. And the Mary Rose specifically, the tabor pipes, which were performed with the drum, were also used by court jesters during this time. So you have this sort of instance of casual recreation, but there could also have been, in this particular instance, nine different players with their own instrument. There could have been fewer woodwind players, each with their own set of tabor pipes, that could have also carried the other reed pipes and whistles. So there could have been musicians with different set of instruments for different occasions. And I think that the more that we uncover from certain shipwrecks, the more we get a sense of certainly what the ship sounded like, but also it asks us deeper questions about were these musicians multi-skilled? Did they use different instruments for different purposes or occasions? Or was there a, a musician per instrument? How much would it have cost to pay these musicians or have them aboard ship? And it gives us a sense of what potentially the crew was like and the culture was like. One final category of musicians or performers we need to talk about are those who weren't paid. So those who were enslaved or captive. What can you tell us about these men? Were they engaged in similar ways to naval and civilian musicians and performers? Did they do similar things? I think some of the similar things would have been if they were captured or enslaved to replace certain occupations aboard ship, particularly certain laborers who would engage in work songs. You definitely have certain instances where Black Africans were enslaved who were essentially forced to take the place of certain performers aboard ship and then would engage with perhaps either maritime song or a kind of work song. My argument is that musicians and performers had an in-between position allowing them to shift, but this certainly was not the case for enslaved performers. There's also lingual epistemic challenges that have aggravated the gap in knowledge of what we know. But additionally, you have certain figures like Francis Drake's black manservant aboard the Golden Hind Diego, who was captured during his encounter with the Cimarrons in Panama in 1573. And I think he was not only Drake's manservant, but he could have engaged in a lot of different activities to either entertain Drake or be at his will, essentially serving as an extension of his consort. And so you have these certain black performers or servants or enslaved individuals who were probably forced to do a number of things. And we don't have a lot of the material that states exactly what they did every time. We don't have much of that in at least the more well-known public records of this from Hacklett and Purchase. But we do have more indications that enslaved individuals were not only useful, that they brought their own culture and language and music, aboard ship as well. One of the things I talk about in my book is this sort of unsayability. This derives from Paul Gilroy from his book, The Black Atlantic, the topos of unsayability of the black slave experience. And he's specifically talking about the 19th century and the implications behind this. But I'm also looking how Gilroy is speaking to what 
George Lamming is saying when he argues that the language and writing of the oppressor puts the slave in this sort of precarious position of being taught to speak in an act reinforcing their bondage. These enslaved individuals are being forced into the culture of English shipboard life. Certainly, there were many who died, many who rebelled, many who escaped. But even in this particular time period in the mid-16th century, you had people like Massau and Zingo, who were two enslaved men, on Edward Fenton's 1582 voyage to China, who died before the ship, the Edward, returned to England. And they could have died from any number of events. And they were meant to replace the mariners on Fenton's voyage. And they were integrated into the daily rhythm of ship life, whether they wanted to or not. And certainly they didn't. But you also have instances where certain nonverbal communication was used to show certain enslaved people what needed to be done, what to do, how to haul rope, how to do certain tasks aboard ship. But we don't get that in much elaboration in the records. But we can assume that because that's what needed to be done. That makes sense. Well, in this and in all sorts of other ways, your book is a wonderful example of giving a voice, giving song to unheard people. And so to finish, I wonder if now that you've completed your research and congratulations on the publication of your book, there is a story or a person that stays with you that you could share with us. Certainly the song of Egnock. She was an Inuit woman who was captured by Martin Frobisher in 1577 and brought back to England. She was captured on the pretense that she was married or familiar with another slave, Calicho, named that. He had another name, and so did she. But when they returned to England, they didn't live there very long, but they were being forced to perform, to not perform music, but to perform their intimacy and to perform their relationship that they supposedly had. And there's also a baby that Egnock had with her aboard the ship. And she's being forced to convey a kind of intimacy, and she sings a song among George Best, who was the captain, and Frobisher and others. And it's a very mournful song. And that moment of being forced to perform a kind of intimacy and being forced into an entirely new culture and world, and I wonder what that song that she sang was, I can only imagine, because she was witness to many murders and witness to many unspeakable experiences. And I think her image is still in my mind. And it will be in ours now. Thank you so much for sharing that. Such a moving story. A really good indication of how work like this can unearth the people that otherwise might not be seen in the past. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For those who have listened to this and want to know more, James's book, Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages, The Lives of the Seafaring Middle Class, is newly out. It came out in June 2022, and I urge you to get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I'm excited to tell you about a very special offer over on History Hit. On History Hit, we are building the world's best history channel on demand, and we would love to share it with you. History Hit releases two exclusive new documentaries every week. I've made one called Becoming Anne, and we've got another one coming up very soon. And you'll also get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. 
That's not just with me or not just the Tudors, but also across all eras of history, including, of course, the mighty Dan Snow's history hit, Gone Medieval with Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman, The Ancients with Tristan Hughes, Betwixt the Sheets with Kate Lister, Patented with Dallas Campbell and Warfare with James Rogers. So get over to History Hit now. You can find the link in the episode notes below this podcast. And, and this is the crucial thing, use the codes Tudors or NJTT for not just the Tudors to get two weeks free for your monthly subscription, followed by your first three months with 50% off. Get over to History Hit and avail yourself of this splendid offer. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.